And uh, if you have your Bibles today, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Acts 17. We're going to be continuing on in our series, We Are Witnesses, We Are Multiplied, and We Are Sent. We are sent to make God known. Paul finds himself in Athens down on the coast, a city apparently he never intended to go to, at least on this missionary journey. He was chased out of Thessalonica by a group of jealous Jews. He went down to Berea, 45 miles south, had an audience there with a group of very noble people who searched the scriptures. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard he was down there making progress with the gospel, they came down, stirred up a crowd, and chased him out of town. His followers carried him off to Athens, down on the coast. And what Paul did there at Athens is an eye-opening reality for you and me today. Because what he encountered there is what you and I encounter all the time. A very religious people who did not know God. A very religious people that did not know God. You see, you can be religious and spiritual and have no relationship with God whatsoever, as were the people of Athens. And that's why God, through all of those circumstances, brought Paul down to Athens, that he might make God known. The same thing you and I are called to do. Here's how Luke recorded it for us in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the them is the Silas and Timothy who were to join him later. While he was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. As if he needed anything. Oh, excuse me. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. What's your help if I could read? Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray together. Father, what do you want us to learn from this? Why did you bring, through all of that commotion, bring Paul to a city he never even tended to visit? Why did you want him and us to know that we are living in a world filled with idolatry, false gods, and very religious people who do not know God? Lord, I was there once myself. And I'm so thankful for the people that reached out to make God known to me. And I'm very grateful to know that we are sent to make you known. May you inspire us, God, in this end and help us to see our place in this unfolding kingdom of God. And we'll thank you in your precious name. Amen. It was just three years after the sinking of the Titanic when another great ocean liner went down. It was the RMS Lusitania struck by a German torpedo on May 7, 1915. In a book by Eric Larson called Dead Wake and the research he did, it appears that the captain of the Lusitania, a man by the name of William Thomas Turner, tried to create a sense of peace on the ship by telling them that the ship was not going to sink. Shortly after the torpedo struck the liner, a fellow passenger, Charles Laurie, had heard a female passenger call out, Captain, what do you wish us to do? Larson wrote in his book that he replied, stay right where you are, madam, she's all right. Where do you get your information, she asked. From the engine room, madam, he said. But the engine room clearly had not said any such thing. Laureate and the woman now headed back toward the stern, and as they walked, they told other passengers what the captain had said. Second-class passenger Henry Needham may have encountered the pair because he recalled that a passenger approaching from the direction of the bridge had shouted, the captain says the boat will not sink. The remark, Needham wrote, was greeted with cheers. And I noticed many people who had been endeavoring to get their place in the lifeboats turned back and away in apparent contentment. Captain Turner's words merely confirmed what the passengers and crew already believed or what they wanted to believe, that no torpedo could cause the ship mortal damage. There were 1,959 people on the Lusitania. 1,198 of them died. You see, our faith is only as good as the object of our faith. These people have put their faith in the word of a captain they trusted or in the structural integrity of a ship that was sinking. 
But faith that's misplaced cannot save you. And people misplace their faith all the time. People put their faith in things like relationships or a job or their earning power or their health. People even put their faith in God. But if the God you put your faith in is not true, then neither that faith nor that God can save you. And the reason so many people today are lost is because they don't know God. The reason so many religious people are lost is because they don't know God. The reason so many spiritual people are lost is because they don't know God. And the reason they often don't know God is because they don't know anyone who does know him. And sometimes the people who do know God have not been able to tell them or willing. Only the one true God, the God of the Bible, can save. And that's what Paul was doing when he came to the city of Athens. He was telling them. A city filled with idols in itself, named after the false goddess Athena. And when Paul stood in the midst of a very religious people, he proclaimed that in their ignorance they didn't know God, but that he was going to make them known. He was going to make God known. That's why it says in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. God used the persecution of Thessalonica and Berea to bring Paul to one of the most idolatrous cities in Europe. Warren Wiersbe said that Athens at this period of time was in decline. It was down to about 10,000 people. Even though it was still recognized as a center of culture and education, the glory of its politics and commerce had long since faded. It had a famous university and numerous beautiful buildings, but it was not the influential city it had once been. The city had been given over to a cultured paganism that was nourished by idolatry, novelty, and philosophy. The Greek religion was a mere deification of human attributes. They made gods in their own image and the powers of nature. It was a religion which ministered to art and amusement and was entirely destitute of moral power. The Greek myths spoke of gods and goddesses that in their own rivalries and ambitions acted more like humans than gods, and there were plenty of deities to choose from. One man jested that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a man. Paul saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry, Wiersbe wrote, and it broke his heart. Does it break mine? To see people living as they do because they are ignorant of God. So Paul went out to the synagogues and the marketplace and he began to reason with all who would listen, to the Jews and to the God-fearing Greeks. But there were also others listening in, especially at the marketplace. There were two schools of pagan philosophical thought in Greece at the time, in Athens at the time. They were the Epicureans and they were the Stoics. The Epicureans were the ones who thought pleasure was the goal of life. 
that God's job, if there was a God, was to provide everything we want and meet all of our needs. But the real joy of life was pursuing pleasure. They didn't believe that the gods could really provide anything. And so, the Epicureans had a saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Grab for all the gusto you can get. You only go around once in life, so get it now before it's gone. Sound familiar? And then there were the Stoics. The Stoics were the ones who believed in the ultimate ability of humanity, that humans are self-sufficient. Theologically, they were pantheistic. They believed that God was in everything and everything was God. So God is impersonal and God is unknowable. Therefore, we have no need for these gods because man is sufficient within himself. That also sound familiar? So when they heard Paul preach about Christ and the resurrection, that there is one God who lives in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that God the Son has come in human flesh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died for our sins, buried in a tomb, and rose again, conquering sin, death, and the grave, and he's the only way to God. When they heard that, they thought, what is this babbler trying to say? And the word babbler is literally taken from birds picking up seed. In other words, babblers were viewed by these folks as people who picked up all kinds of bits and pieces of syncretistic religions and put them all together in an incoherent whole, in an incoherent whole. And so what they were thinking was, this Paul's talking about a God who becomes a man, who dies for our sins, who rises from the dead. The guy's ridiculous. He's piecing all this stuff together. He's a babbler. And so they said, you know what, Paul, you're advocating some strange stuff here. We're going to take you to our adjudicating council called the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was kind of like a first century think tank where the Athenians who were there and the foreigners who were there spent all of their time listening to new ideas and evaluating them and then judging whether or not they were credible. It was to this body that Paul says, you know what, I can see you guys are very religious. And when I was walking around, I saw this altar to an unknown God. You got it all covered. You got all the ones you know of, and you got one you don't. And you need to know this. You're very religious, but you don't know God. You're living in ignorance, and I'm going to tell you now who this unknown God is. Because he's the only one who can save you. And just like Paul, we are sent. To make this same God known for the same reason. Because Luke reminds us we are sent to make God known to a world that doesn't know him. What are we to make known about God? People, this is so simple. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. And if you don't know him as creator and sustainer, you will meet him one day as judge. We are sent to make it known that God is the creator. Paul said in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Tim Yulhoff, in his book, The God Conversation, said, I want you to imagine that you and your friends are hiking in the Black Hills of South Dakota. As you round a hill, you come upon a site that stops you in your tracks. In front of you are four giant faces carved into stone. Each head is as tall as a six-story building. The faces are a perfect likeness of four American presidents, George Washington, 
Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. Now, after taking some photos of this magnificent find, what conclusions would you come to concerning its origins? How did these faces appear on the mountains? What reasonable options are there to explain it? Well, there are a lot in the world today would tell you this. Oh, that's obvious. The wind and the rain blew, and over time, it carved out those magnificent faces. It was time plus energy plus chance. Now, Carl and I and our family have visited Mount Rushmore two, three times. If you go there, you can go down to this little building where the designer and creator of Mount Rushmore used to do his work and his design and where he directed the whole construction of the mountain face. And what's interesting to me, when you go down there, you can read all about its history. You can read all about the people who worked there. The docents will tell you all about how it was done. And not a single time will anybody there tell you that happened by time plus energy plus chance. They won't tell you that. Because it's absolutely ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It's idiotic. Nobody would believe it. But here's what I find interesting. Here's what I find interesting. People know that Mount Rushmore was created. In fact, when they go there, they learn that it was the brainchild of a sculptor named John Gutzen Borglum who wanted to create a memorial of America's most revered presidents. Borglum and his 400 workers devised an ingenious method of removing more than 800 million pounds of stone through blasting. And before the blasting could begin, designers mapped out the size and shape of each president. The president's noses are 20 feet long and rest above mouths that are 18 feet wide. Each of the president's eyes is 11 feet across. The carvings are scaled to individuals who, if they were standing, would be 465 feet tall. And after 14 years of work, the four busts were completed at Mount Rushmore, open to the public in 1941. Crowds flocked there. People stand there in awe of what Borglum created. And what strikes me is in that moment, they look at the faces of Mount Rushmore and nobody thinks that happened by chance. And yet, they're looking out at a blue sky, a sun shining, an earth that rotates, the stars that appear, the changes of the weather, and the fascination of the handiwork of all the humanity that's milling around them. And they say, that happened by chance. It's ridiculous. It's illogical. There is greater design in the universe and in the world around them than there is on those faces on that mountain. John Goodson Borglum designed and created Mount Rushmore. Almighty God, Elohim, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, created everything in heaven and on earth. He is the creator. And see, that was the beginning point for Paul. Because he knows if you don't get this right, all the ever, everything else he's going to share is going to make no sense. So he says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. You see, the Athenians believed that they arose out of their native soil and so somehow that made them superior as a race and a people than anybody else. But Paul says, that's not true. You didn't arise out of the native soil of, of Athens. There is one God who made you. There's one God who made everybody. In fact, there's one God who made everything in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
The word Lord he used is the Greek word kurios, which is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Yahweh, Jehovah, Elohim, Creator, God. He's Lord over all of heaven and earth because there is no other. You see, that's what God has been sending to people for centuries. The message that there is one God, there is no other. Because it's essential to our well-being to know that. That's why 700 years earlier than Paul preached in Athens, Isaiah was preaching to Israel when the Israelites were turning to idolatry and thinking that there were more gods they needed to please or know. And God said to them through Isaiah in 45, Isaiah 45 verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me. So that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Paul is revealing to the Athenians how God has created everything. Man creates nothing. I don't know if you ever heard the apocryphal story of the scientist who was debating with God about his ability to create. And so he says to God, hey, let's let's get together and we'll make something. And God says, all right, I'm going to take this dirt and I'm going to bring life into it. It'll become a living being. And the scientist said, I can do that. And he reached over and took a lump of dirt and he started to work. And God said, whoa, 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 get your own dirt. See, the fact of the matter is, mankind talks about all the things they can do to create like God does, but the fact is they can't even form the simplest thing that makes it happen because God created everything. You have nothing to start with if God hasn't given it to you. Not only that, Paul said he doesn't like, he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. You might say, well, wait a minute, didn't Solomon build a temple at God's direction in which God lived? Well, Solomon built a temple. And God's glory was there, his name was there, his presence was there. But even Solomon knew that God could never live there because he's too big. Remember in 1 Kings 8, verse 22, Solomon stands before the altar of the Lord at the dedication in front of the whole assembly of Israel. He spreads out his hands towards heaven and he says, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Look at verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Even Solomon knew God couldn't live in temples made by human hands. You want to know a profound thought? Are you a Christian today? And God is living in you. You're his temple today. Human hands didn't build this. God built this temple. And he's living in the hearts of those who believe. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Warren Wiersbe once wrote, in these brief statements, Paul wiped out the entire religious system of Greece. Paul revealed God as a creator because 
He knew that if you don't have God as creator, everything else comes unraveled. He told the people, you're worshiping in ignorance. Because Paul understood if the true God is not the ultimate one of your worship in the place that only God reserves, then you will stick something else in God's place. And you will worship that because we were created to worship. So you either worship in the truth or you worship in ignorance. And the God of choice that most people shove into God's spot when he is not truly known and worshiped as God is self. And it comes in many, many forms. So what happens is people push the creation to replace the creator. That's what Paul was writing about at Rome in Romans 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now watch this. For although they knew God. You see, God said, you can't look out at creation and not know that I'm here. In fact, foolish people have to suppress that truth in order to deny it. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So God gave them over in judgment to the life they wanted to serve the very gods, the created gods they'd put in his place. And he destroys them with the moral, sexual, and ethical swamp that their rebellion creates. You want to know why the world is in a mess today? This is why it's in a mess today. People don't know God. You see, the whole lie of evolution propagated in our school systems that there is no God. And it's created generations of people growing up thinking that they have emerged out of the primordial slime to the top of the food chain. So if there is no God, and I'm the product of time plus energy plus chance, then it's survival of the fittest. Then I am the right to be my own God and call my own shots. So much of the Mother Earth, radical environmentalism, controlling climate change, is all extensions of this lie. When people start saying, man is responsible for weather, not God, you already know you're off the rails. Mankind can't control weather. I don't care how much aerosol spray you use under your armpits. God is in control of the weather. 
God's in control of the universe. And people, not only that, there's vestiges of this rebellion against God that man is the ultimate. It's everywhere. You know this whole transgender thing that we hear about all the time today? That's not a result primarily of sexual confusion. That's rebellion against God. Here, here's the deal. It's the last vestige of this. God, you don't have the right to tell me what my sex and gender is. I have the right to determine what that is. You don't decide it. I do. It's rebellion against God in its greatest form. And yet it's couched in so many different smoke screens to get people to buy it. People, so often we hear that you either got to be a good follower of science or you got to be a good follower of God, but you can't be both because they don't intersect and merge and great scientific minds would never accept the fact that God is the creator. That's a bunch of baloney. In fact, you know that the greatest scientific minds throughout history have acknowledged God as creator. And many of them weren't even Christians. How about Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century, the astronomer who first held the proponent of heliocentrism, which is that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, the earth revolves around the sun. How did he figure that out? Because of the design and order he saw in the universe. He said, who could live in close contact with the most consummate order and divine wisdom and not feel drawn to the loftiest aspirations? Who could not adore the architect of these things? The design in the solar system. How about Johannes Kepler, 17th century, one of history's greatest astronomers, who said, my Lord and my creator, I would like to proclaim the magnificence of your works to men to the extent that, they, that my limited intelligence can understand. I wish they could know the greatness of who you are. How about Isaac Newton, the 18th century founder of classical theoretical physics? The admirable arrangement and harmony of the universe could only have come about from the plan of an omniscient and omnipotent being. Carl Linnaeus, 18th century founder of systematic botany. I have seen the eternal, infinite, omniscient, omnipotent God pass close by, and I felt prostrate in adoration. He discovered the intricacy of plants and how they work could never have come about by chance. There has to be a God who created these things. Thomas Edison, 20th century, the prolific inventor, held 1,200 patents. My utmost respect and admiration to all engineers, but especially the greatest of them all, God. Robert Millikan, 20th century, great American physicist, won the Nobel Prize in 1923. I can assert most definitely that the denial of faith lacks any scientific basis. In my view, there will never be a true contradiction between faith and science. Albert Einstein. 20th century founder of modern physics and the winner of the Nobel Prize in 1921. Everyone who is seriously committed to the cultivation of science becomes convinced that in all the laws of the universe is manifest a spirit vastly superior to man and to which we with all of our powers must feel humble. Edwin Schrodinger, 20th century discoverer of wave mechanics, won the Nobel Prize in 1933. The finest masterpiece is the one made by God, according to the principles of quantum mechanics. You hear what he's saying? The whole science of quantum mechanics doesn't exist if there isn't a God who made it work. 
Werner von Braun, 20th century rocket engineer and space architect. Above everything is the glory of God, who created the great universe which man and science discover and research day after day in profound adoration. And scientist after scientist after scientist who gave us our greatest discoveries, all acknowledging, whether they were Christians or not, that there is a God who created. Otherwise, it couldn't be. Even Charles Darwin, supposed author of the evolutionary theory, in his Origin of Species, written in 1859, was shocked at how his theories took off. In fact, he wrote, I was a young man with unformed ideas. I threw out queries, suggestions, wondering all the time over everything. And to my astonishment, the idea took wildfire. Wildfire. People made a religion of them. Later in his life, he was speaking one time on the holiness of God and the grandeur of this book, not just the Bible, but particularly the book of Hebrews, which he was thoroughly enthralled with. This British naturalist declared after that speech, Jesus Christ and his salvation is not that the best theme? Not all of these people were Christians. But they came to the understanding that what they had observed, the theories they developed, the things they put forth as principles could never be if there was not a God of design and order who created it all. People who tell you that science and faith contradict are lying to you. They don't. We are sent to make it known that our God is the creator. And not only the creator, but we are sent to make it known that God, our God is the sustainer. Paul said in verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. You don't like the time you're living in or the place you're living? Take it up with God. He said, I set all that up just for you. He's got you where he wants you. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. When I worked in business up in Seattle, I had a colleague named Fred. He was a great guy. We had a good friendship, I think. Uh, but he was clueless about God. I used to share with him all the time. Uh, he married a Vietnamese girl uh, who couldn't speak very good English, but she could cook like nobody's business. So being a single guy, when Fred invited me over for dinner, I'm going. So I went to Fred's house, and I go out in the backyard, and here's this metal pole, five, six feet tall, and on top is this beautiful, elaborate bird feeder. And I said to Fred, man, that is an amazing bird feeder. And he says to me, that ain't no bird feeder. That's our temple. And I said, your temple? He goes, yeah, look inside. So I looked in there, and sure enough, here's this short guy sitting Indian style with a pot belly and a big smile on his face. It's his own <laughs> personal little Buddha. And he's surrounded by all these food scraps. So I said, Fred, uh, what's all the leftovers in the temple here? <laughs> he said, those aren't leftovers. That's our offering. 
I said, you're offering? He goes, yeah, we're, we're feeding the Buddha. I said, oh, does he eat this stuff? <laughs> he goes, well, no. Actually, when it dries out, we just take it out and replace it. I said, well, why do you keep putting it in there if he's not eating? Because in case he's hungry. Well, I know this sounds ridiculous to you. But Paul found a whole educated religious society doing the same thing. They're appeasing these gods, these gods who have needs just like they do, and they think that somehow by what they're doing, they're going to help these gods so the gods will help them. Paul told the Athenians, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need anything. You need him for everything. Verse 25, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Do you remember what God told Israel when they made the same mistake? When they began to abandon their worship of the one true God and they began to embrace all the pagan gods that were around it. And so these people began offering to these gods to appease these gods so that they would meet their needs so the gods would meet their needs. You remember what God told Isaiah, or excuse me, what he told the psalmist to tell to the nation? Psalm 50 verse 9, listen to this. God said, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all that is in it. See, God doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from him. He himself gives us life and breath and everything else. He gives us life, physical life, spiritual life. You see, there is no life apart from God. There's existence apart from God, but there's no life apart from him. He creates life. He sustains it. He gives breath. From the Greek word to blow. God blows into us the breath that gives life. You have air in your lungs, but you don't have the breath of life without God. Dead people can still have air in their lungs, but they don't have breath of life in them. God is the one who blows the breath of life to give us life. There's a big difference between air and breath. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us everything else. 
So we breathe his air, we eat his food, we drink his water, we wear his clothes, we live in his houses, we drive his cars, we spend his money. You don't think so? Let me ask you this. How many of those things did you bring into the world when you came? Nothing. And how much are you taking with you when you leave? Nothing. I've done a lot of funerals. I've seen all kinds of interesting things piled into caskets. And I hate to break the news to people, but none of it's leaving planet Earth. You see, you come into the world with nothing and you leave with nothing because none of it's yours. It all belongs to God. He determines what you get and he determines what you don't get. That's the lesson God taught to Moses as he was leading the people out of Egypt to the promised land. Remember, here's some slaves who have nothing. No rights, no property, no nothing. And they're leaving Egypt with the treasures of Egypt. God plundered it and he took out 400 years of back wages. They're heading across the desert to a promised land. So what does God have to teach a bunch of impoverished people who've just given a large yes of treasure of what they need to learn on their way to the promised land. They need to learn that their hope is not in those things, and they didn't supply those things. God supplies those things. So he takes them through a desert where what? They have no food, and they have no water. And every day they have to do what? They have to look to God to give them water out of a rock. They have to look to God to give them manna from heaven. Otherwise, they're starving to death in the desert. We've got all this abundance, but without God, we have nothing. And they had to learn that. Because where were they going? To the land of milk and honey. Where they were going to be living in houses they didn't build, drinking out of wells they didn't dig, and eating from vineyards they didn't plant. And God said, when you get there, Deuteronomy 8, you're going to forget me. You're going to think you did all of this. In fact, he said that in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today, you will surely be destroyed. You see, the Epicureans didn't want God. They wanted whatever gods could provide. The Stoics didn't need God because they believed they could do it all without him. So to all these people, the gods were just needy. So that's why they gave in hopes that God would give back. You know, there's a lot of Christians make that mistake today. They think when they come to give an offering, they're giving God something out of their stuff. And man, they got it backward. God is letting us in every offering to render back to him in worship his stuff to be used for his purpose. That's what the offering's about. And it helps us to remember that everything comes from God. Paul said God set it up this whole way. God did this, verse 27, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. Why did God set it up that we're so much in need of him? 
Because if we lose sight of that fact that we're in need of him, we'll stop looking. When we stop looking, we won't find. And when we don't find, we don't have him. We don't have him. We're dead. We're lost. So God said, I'm going to make it aware that you need me for everything. So you'll always be looking to me and nothing else as your sustainer. So Paul told them, verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul had reminded them, your own prophets like Epimenides and Aratus, they've told you the same thing. God is the creator, he's the sustainer. We're his offspring, he's not our offspring. Your own poets say this. So stop thinking of these ignorant things that you think about. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands people everywhere to repent. Now you know the truth. You have a decision to make. You've got to turn around, stop going the way of ignorance, and come the way of truth. Because he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul says, you now have a choice. Before you were in ignorance, but now you're not. I've just told you who God is. He's the creator and he's the sustainer. And he's going to judge the world in, in justice. The word is righteousness. He's going to judge the world in the righteousness of the one he has appointed, which is his son. So Paul's telling him, you need to repent, you need to turn around, because here it is. If you don't trust God as your creator and your sustainer, then you're going to meet him as the judge. And here's your option. You're going to meet him. He's already set the day. You're going to be judged by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you can come and face this God in your own righteousness, or you can come and face this God in the righteousness of Christ. The choice is yours. And God has given proof of this. He raised this Jesus from the dead. When some people heard that, they sneered. They literally mocked him. They laughed. This thing's a joke. But some said, you know what? I want to hear some more about this. But some of the people believed. What about you? Do you know this God? Have you believed the gospel? Do you know this true God who is the Savior? And more than that, if we do know him, are we making him known? That's why we have relationships. That's why we work where we do, live where we do, shop where we do, eat where we do. That's why we have all these relationships, because God is wanting us to make him known to people who don't yet know him. And I was reading a piece about Robbie Williams. He's a British pop singer. He sold 75 million albums, one of the most prolific ever. He's an actor, and um, he was at the most recent Cannes Festival. He's, he's doing a lot in the world. A lot of people follow him and buy his stuff. Um, I read an interview he did in 2001 on BBC Radio about he was talking about how he had overcome his previous addictions by prayer. I thought, wow, I should read that. Here's what he said in the interview. I haven't had a drink or done drugs for seven months. And I'm feeling good. I'm enjoying it. It's quite hardcore to get up in front of 60,000 people knowing that when you come off stage, you're not going to get drunk. Instead, you're going to be praying. 
but not for long. I just ask Elvis to look after me. I've got the tattoo on my arm, Elvis grant me serenity. Before the gig, we all get together and we huddle up and we pray to Elvis to look after us while we're on stage. You can be very religious. You can be very spiritual. You can even have a very active prayer life and not even know God. People live in this kind of nonsense because they don't know him. And they often don't know him because they don't know anybody else who knows him. But we know him. And that's why we've been sent by God. To tell people, our God is the creator. Our God is the sustainer. He's the one who can save you. He's the judge of the world. He's the only one in which you should put your faith. And he's proven this by raising Jesus from the dead. Father, I want to thank you today for taking Paul to Athens, for letting him see what he saw, for the message he left there. He was sent to make you known. You send us out every day in so many ways, in so many places that we may not intend to go either, but we meet people and have relationships and they're there for a reason. We may be able to share with people the good news that can save their lives. People are putting their faith in all kinds of things, but only their faith in the one true God will ever save them. And you've given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. God, as we go out into the world leaving this place, May we go with a deep sense of privilege that we have been sent to make you known. And we'll thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.